The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to episode number 22 of the Marine Layer podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we're joined by Jason Churchill, a prospect insider and the host of Baseball Things. We sat down with Jason and had a long conversation. We talked about a lot of things, baseball, Mariners, ballparks, broadcasters, whole lot of stuff in this conversation with Jason Churchill. He's awesome. He makes great content around the Mariners with his podcast, Baseball Things. And we're so happy that he could join us here on the Marine Layer Podcast to talk about a lot of things. Uh, it was a long conversation. So we only uh, the only other thing we'll have in this episode is Speak Your Mind, which we will close out the show with. With that, let's get it rolling. And we welcome you into this episode of the Marine Lighter Podcast, recording here on Monday, March 27th. By the time you're listening to this, it will be Wednesday the 29th, and opening day will be tomorrow. I'm happy. It should be a holiday. It should be a federal holiday. I should be off of work on that day. Day after the Super Bowl and opening day in Major League Baseball. No work, no school, national holiday. Also, here in Seattle, it's going to be sunny. How often in late March, early April, is it sunny for opening day? Yeah, it's like 34 degrees outside right now, so I don't want to hear it. Pouring rain. I mean, I'm like, I don't want to hear it. Thanks. It was 60 last week, briefly, before it got down to like 25. So I guess, is, uh, I guess this is how my brain works, that because we're both in the Pacific Northwest, even though you're about four hours away from the Seattle area, just in my brain, I'm like, Oh, well, it's sunny here, so it's probably sunny in Corvallis, and, and it's not, is it? I always try to I, – I always think the weather's the same, like you said, but uh, it is – it is uh, it's a little farther apart. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to – I mean, it's not even just the Mariners. The fact that we get a full day of baseball, and I'm excited because we'll just have more to talk about. The, the, funny enough, the episode we record next week will be the first episode we will have recorded – with actual baseball being played, not just Mariners. I mean, in general, which we want to, we of course want to talk about the Mariners. That's the podcast is centered around the fact that we are Mariner fans, but Hey, there's a lot of other interesting stuff that happens across this league that, you know, we want to talk about as well. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, oh, there's nothing, there's not more of a, a we're back moment. Uh, I we'll, we'll have to brainstorm how we're, where exactly we're putting this into our episodes, Lyle. Because we've talked about this, but we do have our first umpire of the week. That the guy came out today here on Monday. My goodness, I've never in the uh, the Phillies spring training game today. I've never seen someone got tossed for something so small. Um, so JT Romuto is catching, and he puts his glove back like this. Oh, so if you're listening to this on the podcast, his right hand or his left hand is back over his shoulder with his glove extended for the umpire to put a ball in it. And he sees the umpire threw it back to the pitcher. So he takes his glove down and he puts it back in his lap. And the umpire, about to put it in there, accidentally throws the ball on the ground. 
gets pissed off and tosses JT out of the game <laughs> for not for taking his glove down. It, go look up the video on Twitter if you can even find it. Speaking of messes, Twitter's another one recently. But regardless, it's 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 one of the funniest videos ever. I got a great cackle looking at that today. <laughs> Let's give people a teaser here. When the regular season starts, so the next show that we do, part of what we're going to do during these regular season shows, we'll have a few segments, but one of them is going to be highlighting an umpire that has just been insufferable and miserable to watch throughout a single game or the week. We have a special name for it too. I mean, I mean, right up TJ and I's alley, right up Seattle fans alley. We're going to leave you with that as the teaser and we'll spoil what the name is next week when the segment actually starts. But if you are somebody that likes to hear umpire slander, come right to this podcast because we will not shy away. The thing I don't like, uh, and this can go right, right back to my beef with Twitter. So we're not going to get umpire scorecards this year. I don't believe not on Twitter, not easily available. We're not. I don't think so because, because automated accounts cost money. Right? Yeah, you're right. Right. So I, I, well, I guess we'll find out on Thursday. I am pretty certain that that the umpire scorecards uh, might not be available. I, I could be wrong. There are at least so there is a website with umpire scorecards that you can go look at, right? So that's not that's not going anywhere. Just the fact that there is a Twitter account pushing it out. This is not confirmed information. I'm not a an MLB insider on these on these sort of topics, but I know some of these automated accounts, which it's a real shame they're going away because I find them extremely helpful for keeping up with things in a full day of baseball. Uh, so we'll we'll, uh, we'll look out for that on Thursday. I do love a good scorecard, though. I can't wait for our first eighty-five percenter of the year. It's gonna it's gonna be a mix. It's not just gonna be ejections. It's just not just gonna be something an umpire said. Uh, it, you know, we're gonna mix in some scorecards too. It's like, man, dude. I mean, you are a professional and you're hitting at like eighty-five percent in the strikes. I mean, this just can't happen. I mean, it, it could be a whole number of things. And I'm looking forward to the creative ways we'll we'll dig one up. If we were just going to do umpire scorecards, we could do CB Buckner every week. I mean, that guy's got to be yeah, in the 85th percentile just about every game he's behind the plate. It's ridiculous. But anyway, we're looking forward to that. We're certainly looking forward to Mariners baseball, to baseball in general being back. I think we have a pretty good podcast here this week to set everybody up for opening day because our interview with Jason Churchill, it's about an hour and 20 minutes, but Jason Churchill is awesome. I mean... TJ and I have followed him for years. I said it to him during the interview. He is one of the smartest Mariners people you will find. I mean, he knows his stuff so well. He does his research. He's in-depth. He knows what he's talking about. And you can tell from us talking with him in the interview that he really dives deep into this stuff and really has his information. He's really on top of his information. So it's pretty cool. And, and we cover a lot of topics too, not just Mariners. It's a very easy-flowing conversation. I enjoyed it a bunch. I mean, I know we say this every week. It was one of my favorites. I, it It is always great to like, it's when we get an interview that's not really formal, right? Mm -hmm. Formal interviews get a little painful at times. I mean, it, it gets a little stacked, uh, a little, little stiff, but Churchill, it just flow. It's a great conversation. So don't, don't want to rob you any, uh, any more time of, uh, of waiting to listen to that. Yeah, let's not do that. Also, 10 seconds here, side note. If you are a member of Payroll Twitter, this episode may not be for you, or maybe it is. See what Jason Churchill and the two of us had to say about Payroll Twitter. So, 
Let's not delay it any longer. Let's get to our interview with Jason Churchill. We welcome Jason Churchill onto the Marine Layer podcast. Jason's the host of the Baseball Things podcast, and genuinely, he is one of the smartest Mariners people you will find. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is this is really awesome. We really appreciate you joining us. Hey, no problem, guys. Uh, checks in the mail for that. I appreciate that. Um, I, I feed off of people like you guys. You know, you guys that you're wearing the Mariners gear and you watch this team religiously. I told a lot of people last year that the reason why it was fun wasn't because the team was good. It was because of everybody's engagement in it, the buzz that you hear. That was a lot of fun, and you guys are certainly part of that. Do you choose to respond to certain people versus other people on Twitter? Because I know you're talking about the fan engagement, and I know, like like any fan base, on Twitter, it can be a bit of a cesspool, and we certainly see it in the Mariners' world. So do you kind of pick your spots? It's like, okay, I think this guy just made a good point, or are you like, eh, I'll respond to anybody? I'm usually the other way. It's a really good question. I'm usually the other way because I'm kind of a glutton for punishment a little bit. Um, when someone says something pretty stupid that that's that you're generally, you know, more likely to get something from me if you're just the complete idiot in the room, mm -hmm. but it sounds like you think you have, you're onto something. Those are the ones I kind of seek out a little bit. It's like this guy needs his head flipped around, you know? Uh, seriously though, it, it's kind of random. I'm trying to actually use Twitter less and i think by opening day my twitter commenting days will be to a minimum um it's it's a t it's time consuming so in terms of picking and choosing what you uh what you spend your time on on social media yeah for me it's just going to be a lot of i use it as a marketing tool because genuinely that's its value to me and i'll keep the conversations in the in the right spots but uh that's the battle right like we're all out on social media we experience things with each other even if we're not sitting next to them at the stadium or at the ballpark, we experience it with social media, you know, in, in, in large part. And, and it was really cool to see last year with the, with the Mariners breaking through and the excitement that built up and how nervous everybody was and how elated everybody was when Cal hits the homer and all that good stuff. And in, in the Toronto series, that was obviously great as well. But yeah, picking and choosing is, is not necessarily my specialty because I'll seek out the ones to, to rip instead of the ones where it might require, you know, something positive. Uh, so I think instead of saying, hey, church, just be more positive, I'm just going to refrain from commenting a whole lot. I think that's a little bit of a uh, little bit of an easier path for me. When you spend less time on Twitter, is anyone you're going to miss? No, oh, good, good <laughs> absolutely not. Um, and, and you know, some some folks are asking me why I'm doing this. Is like, there's there's value to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and things like that, but there's not a lot of value in creating Twitter threads, and um, there's not a lot of value in your followers unless it becomes transactional in some way. And when you do a you know a podcast or have content that's behind a paywall. You certainly use social media, need social media to some extent for that purpose. But beyond that, it's just a uh, it's one of those rabbit holes that you just really don't want to fall down. But it's really difficult to avoid sometimes because you're interested in the topic. We're interested in baseball. We're interested in the marriage. We're interested in football or whatever it is. Politics sometimes is the worst hole to go down on social media. So for me, it's just I'm trying to get away from it and spend my time doing creating more content, doing more podcasts or having conversations with the subscribers in the baseball thing, Slack channel, things of that nature. So less social media, more direct, you know, kind of have conversations with actual people that subscribe to the show or that I know in real life, you know, maybe church go out and have a social life for once, you know, and in a blue moon. And, and that's kind of part of it as well. 
talking with your subscribers on uh, on Prospects Insider, which you founded in 2006. So if you want to go find Jason and, and others' work there, prospectsinsider.com, also the host of the Baseball Things podcast. That's something you launched back in in 2006. I don't I don't know if it was necessarily ahead of its time, but I was reading the feature piece on Barrett Sports Media on you earlier today, and I didn't realize, Jason, before all of this happened, you were like a message board guy. Yeah, so <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a funny story. So back before a lot of this even existed, when blogs were just starting to kind of become a thing, like 2001, 2002, 2003, like most people didn't really know what a blog was, you know. Um, there were message boards out there. There was one in particular called baseballboards.com. And, uh, and I found it and I thought it was interesting and I'd interact with a few people. And a guy by the name, I'm just going to go ahead and name drop, a guy by the name of Joe Kaiser is one of my best friends to this day, uh, contacted me on there and said, hey, uh, I'm running the Mariners version of dogman.com on the same network, which at the time was called The Insiders. And then Fox ended up buying it. And now it's, Dogman is at 247 Sports with uh, with the CBS brand. Uh, so I th- that's kind of where I learned how to write. That's where I learned um, how to communicate baseball. That's where I got my opportunities in baseball, and that's how it started. But, yeah, it started on, on a message board. That's where Joe Kaiser kind of found me and says, hey, you seem to really like this stuff. You want to come over and help me build something over here? And and uh, that, uh, that turned into InsideThePark.com. And then a couple of years later, I was like, I'm just going to start my own thing and focus on the minor leagues and prospects. And that's where Prospect Insider came from. So it sounds like when you were a commenter, you tried to provide insightful, well thought out remarks and thoughts as opposed to. Uh, no, you, you, are you going to uh, say you were you were more I like think, uh, I was I think, to be honest with you, I was just uh, I was just like anybody else. You know, I was a fan of the game. I was interested in in the Mariners I was interested in the farm system and I had had an opportunity to to go through at the time which was a um like a bird dog school um for scouts years back in Florida and it doesn't exist anymore man it's been gone for a long time so I got to learn a lot there and I thought I had some insight on some things and to some extent I did that maybe others didn't that they didn't have experience in but what I wasn't good at then was conveying the point and you learn that as time goes by as a as a radio guy or a podcast guy or a writer or even on social media, you learn what resonates with people and what's effective and what's not. Back in the, the, the message board days, it was just like, no, 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 that's BS. That's not what's going on here. And then you really don't know how to explain yourself, right? So that was the very early days of, of trying to be able to convey the point or actually provide legitimate insight or analysis. Because if you don't explain it to people and they don't see it, it's just anecdotal. It's subjective. And at the end of the day, people really aren't going to care. You're not Pat Gillick. You're not Jerry DePoto. You're not Brian Cashman. You know what I mean? You're not King Scout. Like, you know, show. And that's about that time is when we started to see the birth of what I like to consider today the the voice um, type of content that we see out there where, you know, someone might go out and like Travis Sachik is really good at this. Keith Law is really good at this. Some of the folks at Fangraphs are really good at this. Like, it's not just, hey, I went and saw this player and here's what I thought. It's, hey, I've been watching this player just like everybody else. Um, here's why I think he's struggling. Here's why I think he's succeeding. And you're using data to back it up. And the more data that becomes available to us, the more interesting that gets and the, the tighter the conclusion is, right? We just didn't, we didn't have that back then. So it was very subjective. 
and and very anecdotal and so you're not winning a lot of arguments because you know you can't show your work it's like well i know more than you that doesn't work right like you guys can't walk around i can't walk around and just say hey i know more than you like that doesn't work right you have to do the work and build a reputation or and or show your work show your data show evidence um that's a struggle and even in my day job these days it's a little bit of a struggle to convey to writers hey if you want to be some sort of a voice some sort of an authority on this like show the work and then eventually you know five years down the road ten years down the road people will be like well i mean it's you know it's tj matthewson or it's lyle goldstein they know what they're doing like you know then you have a name in that in that realm um i'm still trying to get there to be honest with you you know in, in that way you know at least um some people look to me for content but in, in terms of opinion uh to come to a conclusion you know I'll, I'll get there maybe when i'm 80 maybe 90. so what i'm taking from that is you learn to be a little more insightful than the group of mariners twitter people who call themselves payroll twitter oh good lord <laughs> oh boy yeah so i gotta be honest i i ignore it because it's not content it's just whining um even though i agree yeah John Stanton should spend more money on his baseball team, but does it, doesn't it really end right there? Like there's no argument against it, right? There's no argument that they shouldn't in general spend more money on the team. So now we're just arguing semantics. How should they spend it? How many players should they spend it on? Which particular players should they spend? Well, that's Jerry DePoto's job. And, and I guess payroll Twitter, as, as you put it, which is a, it's a great phrase. Uh, they're basically suggesting they know how to build a baseball team better than Jerry DePoto. I mean, it, do we really think, by the way, as Mariners fans, as Mariners, uh, Mariners observers, that Jerry DePoto has spent every penny that's available to him for this year? Do we, do we really think that? I, I mean, we shouldn't, right? Probably like, there's not. always a contingency plan. There's always looking ahead, right? So, so was this really John Stanton being cheap, at least to this level? Or was this Jerry DePoto and Justin Hollander saying, well, we have a different plan. Let's do this differently. We're not necessarily going to add a $40 million player. We're not going to add, you know, $100 million in payroll in one offseason. That seems to be what payroll Twitter wanted and thinks should have happened. So, uh, you know, yeah, that's uh, payroll Twitter is a funny thing to me. Yeah, just to kind of bounce off that idea, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, that if the Mariners take the approach of how the Braves modeled themselves, how the Astros modeled themselves, mm -hmm. like those teams still spent a lot of money. But for example, like, you know, if it was up to payroll Twitter, they would have given Trevor Story all the money in the world. Well, mm -hmm. Trevor Story didn't have a great year last year. Now he's injured. I think people would be having buyer's remorse all of a sudden these days if they had made that signing. And they were close to signing him, too. Yeah, they were. Um, it, from what I'm told, they had the largest offer to or were willing to make the largest offer to Trevor Story last year. And it didn't happen. And now we're probably sitting around thinking, whew, you know, it's pr probably a good thing they didn't do that because if they did, would they have been able to go out under the parameters that Jerry DePoto and Justin Allender want to work under the payroll budget that they've been given? Would Castillo have an extension right now? What would Julio Rodriguez extension look like? Would it look different? Would it have taken longer to get done? Would it have been shorter? Would it have been longer? Like things change, you know, when you're trying to plan things out. So that's the thing to me about, you know, fans that want to go out and make baseball decisions. Like the general idea, again, going back to the top of the, the conversation, the general idea that, owners, including John Stan and the Seattle Mariners, should spend more money than they do on their product, and somewhat significantly, is 100% true. I don't think there's any argument against it. How they do it and who they spend it on, well, that's up to the experts. I'm not an expert. Are you guys experts on that? You might be. 
But if you're not, then maybe whining about it probably isn't the right way to go. You know, so that's why we don't hear some people whining about it and some people are whining about it. I think you can count me as a, as a guilty party of, of whining just just a little bit. <laughs> not are you totally. whining about the general idea of them not spending? Or are you like, oh, my gosh, they're idiots for not giving Carlos Correa two hundred and fifty million dollars. Like there's a difference between those two things. Uh, I was I was more to the point when it got down to six years of why. I don't, I, I don't understand how you're I, – I don't know if they made an offer or not. I don't know how you don't when it gets down that low. In, in that case, when it when it actually becomes reasonable and not 13 mm-hmm. years of got paying a guy into his 40, age 42 season. It, it's it's a fair question to ask. Um, like, And I don't have any inside information on the Carlos Correa situation, but when two clubs back out of larger deals, you have to start wondering what is actually going on in those uh, in those uh, exams, right? Like, what it, what is it that teams are finding that they don't like so much? So that might actually explain why Seattle didn't really want to engage because maybe if it was going to take six years at the start, maybe they would have engaged, right? And then maybe learned later on, hey, we don't necessarily like the uh, like the physical results. But if if the Mets are saying, well, we don't really love this and we want to do something different after agreeing to a deal with them, then. I'm going to buy that something in there is legitimate that's going to scare some teams away. If the Mets can be scared away, then who can't? Like the Mariners would have been scared away too. That's the way I'm kind of looking at this because of the way the Mets have been spending the last year or so. So I I get that, and and that's fair, you know, to ask at what point don't you jump in? At what point did Dansby Swanson not make sense for you, whether it be at second base or shortstop? Uh, You know, to me, the ones are, uh, you know, from a baseball standpoint, not a spending standpoint, are Michael Conforto and – essentially any mid-rotation pitcher, including Taiwan Walker and Jamison Taylor. Like those guys to me would have fit in kind of how I'm looking at the budget moving forward, especially Conforto, to be honest with you. Uh, not a lot of guaranteed money. The upside is an above average to plus bat that you can, you know, and right now, like what position are we talking about with the Mariners right now more than anything? The designated hitter spot. Even though we know there's going to be a rotation, we also know that that's going to be done with outfielders. So Michael Conforto would have fit in. They're lopsided, right-handed to left-handed. There's just so many things about that that were perfect. But, again, I'm willing to give the club the benefit of the doubt because there's an injury history there. That That's certainly not my area of expertise at all. So it's really tough. And sometimes people look at me and say, you're just uh, – somebody called me the other day. What did they call me on Twitter? Uh, some sort of a Stanton apologist, even though I'm – you know, sitting here saying, yeah, they should spend more money, but whining about it doesn't make you not a Stanton apologist or a Stanton apologist. If you're not whining about it, it's just, Hey, I'm not going to tell them exactly how to spend their money. So, uh, that that's a tough one when injuries are involved in that, but it, that's fair. Did, did you guys feel the same way about the trade turn when Trey Turner was offered more money by the Padres and the Dodgers I'm hearing and turned it down to go to Philadelphia did you guys think why didn't Seattle get involved in that? Or did you actually make this kind of analysis in your head and saying, I get that 10, 11, 12 years, same thing with Xander Bogarts for 25, 30, $35 million paying these guys beyond age 35. I get that. That's a little bit of a problem. Did, did you kind of think that way or were you like, no, they should have done it. So I think TJ and I, this is why I think our dynamic on this podcast is good because I'd like to think we both know what we're talking about, but our views can be a little bit different sometimes. Mm-hmm. At least mine was, yeah, that's way too long to be given a guy a contract for. Even a player as good as Trey Turner, who I think since 2019 is second in baseball in F4. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like at 40 years old, even at 36, 37, 38, 39 years old, you're not going to be getting any bang for your buck. And and that's how those contracts go. But 
I actually prefer the way DePoto has kind of managed his way in his time as the GM and now president of baseball ops where, yeah, he doesn't want to give out another Robinson Cano contract. He's trying to keep a flexible payroll while still giving him opportunities to spend money elsewhere. So yeah, when, when Turner got that deal, especially knowing that usually how it goes with Seattle is they have to overpay to get any free agent. I was like, yeah, I, I think I'm good. It, it didn't take too long into free agency to sort of figure out that Trey Turner was not happening. I don't think, mm-hmm. I mean, just think about it rationally dudes from Florida. Um, it, it, every indication, every rumor that came out the entire offseason was East Coast, East Coast, East Coast, East Coast. And, the you know, Padres offer Mets-level money for mm-hmm. pretty much everything now. They're, they're that committed to it. So when when he's turning down $30 more, more million, dollars, it's like, no. It's just like that. In that, in that case, like, like in, TJ, in it sounds like you, you were on out. this whole, you're going to have to overpay to do it, like overpay even with the market. And it sounds like even, Lyle, if the Mariners could have given – Trey Turner with the Phillies gave him, you'd still probably be like, well, maybe not. Maybe that's not a good idea. So there's a limit. You got there in a different way, but there's a limit, right? See, I look at it this way. Like my limit might be different because it is. It's probably a little different than both of yours. But why is payroll Twitter's limit more accurate than than Jerry DePoto's limit? That's usually where I end the conversation. So you're saying you have this figured out more than John Stanton, more than Jerry DePoto. Like, cause there's a limit. There's, there's got, there's a limit for everybody. We're, look what we saw the Dodgers do this past off season. They didn't really do much, right? They didn't spend a ton of money and people were like, well, they're saving up for Otani. That's not really the way free agency works. They could have signed a bunch of one-year uh, guys and still had a bunch of money for Shohei Otani. Right. And they didn't even really do that. So every team has a limit. Dodgers, Mets have a limit. They saw the, the Correa physical and were like, yeah, let's not risk 300 plus million dollars to do that. Every team has a limit. And while Stanton's limit with the Mariners might not look like what fans want it to look like, if you admit that there's a limit, that means there's a budget. And that means that there's somebody in charge of managing that budget, and that's Jerry DePoto. And Jerry DePoto knows what that budget is. Justin Hollander knows what that budget is. John Stanton knows what that budget is. We do not. We're just sitting here pretending, right? We're we're thinking we have a general idea, but we really don't know at the end of the day what that looks like and what are the consequences uh, of that or what do the circumstances have to look like for Stanton to go, what the hell? And because at some point, at some level, it might make sense for John Stanton to say, what the hell? Let's, let's just get this guy. Let's get that guy. Let's get this guy and win a World Series, and we'll just make up for it on the back end. I don't know what that is because I don't know what the limit is. I don't know what the actual budget is. I think if they're going to go all out like you're making the point of for anybody, it's going to be for the guy next year. Like there, There's no guarantee they land him, but mm. – DePoto usually doesn't offer contracts like that. That's at least my two cents on it. That if he's going to give out some 10-year contract, it has to be a unicorn type of baseball player, which, of mm. course, Otani is. And we're hearing about, uh, at least back channel, I'm hearing about numbers like 15 years and $575 million. 15 years. Okay, so the fifteen year the fifteen years is to uh, is to dumb down the to the the payroll the the year to year payroll kind of right. like what the Padres tried to do with uh, it was with Judge I think they offered him sure. I think they gave him fourteen sure right I think that was yeah mm. yeah um, but even even Brandon Nimmo got a deal like that Nimmo could have got one sixty or could have got one forty one fifty for five or six years but he got more guaranteed money and drew the AAV down by taking eight years instead it's the same idea yeah. Uh, uh, Xander Bogarts got more guaranteed money by taking what an 11 year deal or whatever, instead of eight years and $20 million less. Um, so they know they're not really going to be earning that money later. 
just like you said, Lyle, they, they know that when they're 38, they're not going to be very good. So if they were a free agent at that point, they're not getting $20 million a year on the market. So they might as well take it now, even if it drags their AAV down. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if uh, Otani's going to end up getting 15, but when those kinds of numbers are being floated around, like it's going to get a little crazy. It's going to get crazy. And I think ultimately it comes down to the Mets and the Dodgers at the end of the day. Um, in terms of dollars, like if Otani takes the biggest offer, I think one of those two teams are going to be it. Everything we've heard from him, though, from his camp, and I don't know how how true it is. It's just it, that money isn't the number one priority. Of course, when you're throwing around six hundred million dollars, you know you could say, "Oops, I forgot that." But it, it seems like that might not be the deciding factor. If we're going to shed the slightest bit of optimism that it's not just going to be who's the highest bidder. Yeah, where does he want to be? Yeah, because I mean. I don't know if Seattle gets involved here uh, seriously at all. They're going to be rumored until they're not, you know. Uh, but if the Dodgers are out there floating 500 plus million and the Mets are out there floating 500 plus million and the Angels are willing to go 450, 500 million plus, uh, which they might be, uh, especially now that Artie Moreno is going to hang around, uh, like who else gets involved? Like who else can get involved? Maybe the Yankees decide this is just a player we need to go break the bank for and and put him next to – uh, Aaron Judge in the lineup and put him next to Garrett Cole and, and go in a World Series or two? I don't know. We'll see. Does Boston get back on the train of spending money? I would say probably not, but I guess it's possible because the revenues are huge. I don't know who else can really get involved there. Um, maybe San Diego. Like Maybe San Diego's kind of the dark horse here because they're already spending tons of money and there's really no end in sight. But at the end of the day, yeah, where is Otani going to be comfortable? Where has he actually spent time where at this particular point uh, heading into his platform years, walk year, where has he spent time? Like if we were handicapping this right now, other than the dollars, other than the largest offer and the and a great chance to win, Mets, Dodgers, or where he's familiar with, the Angels, where else makes sense? I don't know. Maybe only Otani knows and the people that are close to him. I'd like to ask Mike Trout that question and get an honest answer, to be honest with you. I don't know how close he actually is with Otani, but I'd like to ask somebody like Trout, if you had to bet and you couldn't bet the Angels, where do you think Otani is going next year? I bet his guess would be pretty good. Hmm. That's an interesting way to think about it's it. Not gonna uh, be, he, it's not going to be. He just seems like he just declined to comment on that, I feel like. He, yeah, knowing, he would. That's why I qualified it. Is if he gives you an honest answer, I bet he'd have a really good idea. I, I'd like to ask mm -hmm. his teammates. They might actually have a better idea than, than Otani himself. Yeah, no, it's possible. And you're right. I mean, the odds of it being Seattle is probably incredibly slim. I think people just like to hold on to hope, and especially because they were essentially runner-ups last time or however you want to claim it, that they've got a shot again. But, again, I mean, nobody really knows the level of money that they don't I think if the money was going to be there, I think they would. I think it would mm -hmm. make – like, like it, it does make sense that he would continue to have interest in Seattle as a market and where Seattle is headed as a team – I don't know. Who knows? Like you can get really creative with contracts too. So like Seattle did with the Julio deal. I, I don't know. And again, you guys made the point. Maybe Otani's like, once it gets to a certain point, 300 million, 350 million, 400, whatever that number is, like who cares? Or I'd rather, you know, maybe he pulls a Tom Brady and signs for 275 because again, maybe that's the threshold for him. And he'd rather play for a team that had a little bit more space to go out and spend and win. And, you know, if, if that's, What's number one? I mean, he's signed a big deal with New Balance. He's going to make, you know, a billion dollars over the next like 10 or 15 years at New Balance. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's ultimately at the end of the day, he doesn't want to go to L.A. He spent some time in the area. Maybe that's not it. Maybe he's not a fan of New York. Maybe he's not a fan of Chicago. Um, it's a good question. I, I, I don't know how to handicap it 
outside of who I think is going to offer the biggest money. It's impossible for me to do. I, I think next off season is going to be really, really fascinating because I think it's the first time in a long time. I think baseball could have an off season that rivals what we see maybe in the NBA and the NFL like this year. I, I had no idea free agency started this week, but you could, you know, you log on to any social media website and, and the NFL, once the free agency starts firing, people are, people are all over the place. Um, and I, I finally think with, with Otani that that could be it. I mean, people are going to be just hanging on the edge. I think he, he actually signs quick. If you're asking me right now, and I know you're not, but if you were, how quickly does Otani, I think it's pretty quick. I think he signs maybe before the winter meetings. Like, I don't think this wow. is going to drag out. He's not the kind of guy that wants the attention. He's not going to sit around and, 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 and kind of be hanging there and not really know where he's playing. I think he's going to want to know, and he's just going to tell his agent, just get me this and get me to that place and then walk away. I think that's what the conversation is probably like. And I think that's what we end up seeing next year. Divish actually kind of made an interesting point. We had him on a couple weeks ago, and I hadn't thought about this, and I don't know how much this will play a factor, but he was talking about how his mom's from Japan, and he's talked with a bunch of people that are involved with baseball in Japan, and they were kind of thinking that another view Otani might have on this is he was saying that in Japan, you know, signing with the best team that's already a super team or taking the most money isn't quote-unquote the honorable thing. Mm. So maybe that's something he kind of takes into account. It was just a point that Divish made that I hadn't thought about, and I thought, oh, maybe that's another thing that plays a factor. Yeah, it's not necessarily something they do. Um, in free agency over there isn't a frenzy the way it is over here either. Um, so, yeah, and, and that's why I wouldn't necessarily handicap the the Dodgers and the Mets as, as favorites, other than they're going to probably be the ones that offer the most money. I don't know that they're actually the favorites, even if they are the ones that offer the biggest contracts because of that, you know, players that come over from overseas, Korea, Japan, uh, even Cuba, they have different priorities, you know, and, and sometimes it's just how they grew up or how they learn the game or what they're used to. But Otani certainly seems to fall into that category. Like he's going to probably pick uh, a place that, that offers a chance to win. And, and obviously they're going to offer a ton of money, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a big market. That doesn't mean it's going to be the super team, the Dodgers, uh, the Yankees, the Mets, things like that. So it's a good point. Uh, it's going to be fascinating. I think to me, the thing that's most interesting about Otani right now is do the Angels end up trading him? Because they have to know their chance to keep him aren't great at this point. Like things would have to go so well the first half of the season for that to change. Um, but I wouldn't put it past him. I definitely wouldn't say the Angels have no chance. But I'd put them behind, you know, probably half of those other teams that we've been talking about, the bigger markets and and some of those clubs like San Diego and Seattle that might be in play even if they're not in the bigger markets. What's the haul like for him? Yeah, that's a great question. Pretty big. Um, you're probably looking at an Angels team that's going to prefer a combination of an impact prospect or two with an impact major leaguer or two which is going to make it really difficult. Like what contender that's trying to pick up Shohei Otani for the stretch run, because that's what you're doing, is going to want to give that up. And that's going to make it really interesting to see what happens. Are the Angels at the end of the day willing to essentially give up on their chances to keep Shohei Otani and take back prospects in return instead of getting major league quality players in return that help them this year and beyond? So if they're willing to trade for prospects, we're probably going to see Otani... I don't know about probably traded, but they're going to get into deep conversations if they're willing to do that. If they're not, I don't think it goes very far. I think he finishes out, finishes out his uh, his contract and then hits free agency uh, coming out of the Angel season. 
you can tell me I'm an idiot if you think this question is just stupid, which idiot. is totally fine. But if Otani goes somewhere <laughs> else next, if Otani goes somewhere else next year, I mean, this is just kind of something I've thought about. At what point does Mike Trout kind of sit there and think, like, am I ever going to play in another playoff game? Like, is there ever a point? Isn't he thinking that right now? Yeah, like, like, is he sitting there and thinking to, thinking to himself, like, is it time for me to finally ask for a trade? Is there ever mm. a point where it gets to that point? That's a good question. I'm not sure Mike Trout is the kind of personality where he would force that. It's something his agent could. That's a possibility. I don't know that Trout is is that kind of a, a personality. Um, he's pretty loyal. Uh, I remember hearing an, inter- an interview with him, actually with Dave Sims um, on the Mariners Network. Dave asked him, why, why L.A.? Like, why have you made L.A. home? And he just said that his wife fell in love with, with L.A. and living at the beach, even though they were from the East Coast, even though they're from Jersey, New York. And, and, and that was it. And now they've been there, you know, 12 years or whatever. I don't know. It, it would take a lot, I think, for, for Trout to ask for that. I think as long as they go into seasons with a chance and he knows that the owner is committed to, to winning and, and the one thing I think we can say about Artie Moreno that isn't just, hey, he meddles too much. or what, He's obviously not cheap, and he's willing to spend to win. Like, it just hasn't happened. His meddling hasn't been, you know, hasn't been helpful, but it, it just hasn't worked. They've spent money in a lot of the wrong directions, and it just hasn't worked out. And he allowed Mike Socia to derail Jerry DePoto's plan, or maybe they are in the position the Mariners are in right now. But, yeah, I, th- I think as long as Trout is sold on the direction of the team, probably sticks it out. It'd be really weird to hear. I'd be surprised if we ever heard that Mike Trout is asking for a trade. It, it, I'm not saying it's impossible. It just seems weird, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem out of character for him? Totally. Yeah. I just, I just wonder if, if he's just got the itch to play in a postseason game, try to win a World Series. Like, I mean, obviously he does, like every player. But I guess to the point where he thinks I might have to do it somewhere else. Yeah. That's that's where my mind was going. Yeah, I certainly don't know Mike Trout personally, so I, it just it just seems from afar that it's not in character. But who knows? You know, he's getting a little older. He's on the other side of thirty. It's it's kind of time for them to win and for him to have that opportunity. And he, you know, he's only been there once. And hey, guess who was the general manager when he had that opportunity? It's true. You know, I think anybody that's been listening to this interview now for the last 25, 30 minutes, whatever it's been, can probably tell. I mean, you know your stuff really well, both baseball, the Mariners, prospects, and people who follow you, who follow you on Twitter certainly know that too. And we've both followed you for a while, and I've always wondered, how did you learn as much about the Mariners as you have over time? Because, mm-hmm. like, there are a lot of smart Mariners people out there, but I know, like, when I see you talk about them, like, I weigh it differently. I weigh it a little bit more than some other oh, people. wow. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, I think you have to, first of all, you have to care about it. You have to care about actually learning it and not trying to cheat it, not trying to cut, cut corners. Um, that's the hard part. And I think one of the the advantages I have over some others is how many different levels of the game that I've been able to learn from people. Like I've seen high school kids, I've seen college, I've seen minor leagues at every level of the minors. I've seen big leaguers. And for the last almost 20 years, I've been able to ask people in baseball questions on a regular basis and not just pumping them from information for information. I'm pumping them for what am I looking at here and and learning the subjective scouting side of it, as well as talking to some people that like to move data around and come to conclusions and provide, you know, analytics, quote unquote, as as uh, most broadcasts like to call it um, John Smoltz's favorite thing. Um, 
those people are looking at information that's factual and trying to come to projections with it. And and I have access to ask people questions like that. So I'm trying to be as well-rounded as I can to form opinions and to, you know, so to speak, come to conclusions. Um, and I think that's what makes it unique for me. Um, I think I've been doing it a long time too. I think that's the biggest advantage. I mean, how old are you guys? I'm 49. I turned 49 years old two weeks ago. Um, which is a little scary to think of because when I first started, I wasn't that young when I started. I was in my 30s already. We're talking 2002, 2003 when I started really digging into this. Um, so I've been at it 20 years and that experience will help. You talk to a Ryan Divish, he sounds a little different. And when you talk to Ryan Divish than when you talk to like, oh, I don't know, the typical beat reporter because Divish is invested in it. And Divish has spent time sitting behind a plate talking to Scott. You can tell the difference between a beat reporter or a columnist that goes the extra mile to learn that side of things, the scouting side of things, the front office side of things, the player development side of things, the numbers and how they meld it all together. And those that really don't and focus on it, it doesn't make the others wrong or worse, but it does make Ryan Divish a little bit unique in my opinion. That's why he's always been, you know, my favorite of the beat reporters, but I've always tried to do that. I've seen Ryan at games. He'll sit back there, make notes, talk to scouts. He does the same thing. And that's how I've tried to differentiate kind of how I view the team, how I watch baseball, how I look at baseball from so many different layers. And I'm getting even more of that now in my day job with access to guys who evaluate players from from the age of 13 or 14 all the way through college and, and, and the pro game. And, you know, when you have access, and I'm very lucky, a lot of luck involved. This isn't like, oh, I should talk to this guy because this is who he is. It was like, here's a nobody that has the nads to ask me a question. Um I'm going to go ahead and talk to this poor kid. That that was kind of the approach to me when I was, you know, when I was pushing through and, and it all started in Everett in, in 2003, I was at a game and Charlie Kerfeld, who at the time was with the Mariners, former Houston Astros pitcher, um, came up to me and asked me if he could, if I could check a score on my computer form. And that's the first scout that I ever met. And Charlie has been a great resource for me ever since. And that just kind of gave me confidence. I'm going to, I'm going to ask people questions. Um, and you know, I've since learned that if I started asking those questions sooner, I'd be a little further along. And it's one of the things that I push when I talk to younger people, um, make the ask, man, like there's no such thing as a dumb question, you know, like prefacing things with like, this might be a dumb question. So please call me an idiot. If, if it's a dumb question, like I get it, but there are no dumb questions. Um, and I've asked a lot of questions that could have fallen under that category, but because I asked it, I gained information or developed a relationship. And that's been really big for me. You were spending a lot of time in Everett, also in Tacoma as well, with the with the with that that first gig you got. Yeah, um, inside the park when when Joe and I were doing inside the park, we uh, Joe thought he'd reach out and say, "You think we could get credentialed at Cheney Stadium and at Everett Memorial?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> <laughs> no." And then he did, and it was like we were in. I remember the first game I watched was uh, Rich Harden against Rafael Soriano at Cheney Stadium, which was a great matchup. And then the second game I saw was also Rich Harden against Rafael Soriano like a week later. Um, pretty crazy to see back-to-back stars like that. And having access like that and kind of kind of a boots-on-the-ground mentality, um, you'll learn a lot that way. It's pretty incredible. You can. I remember walking into Dan Rohn's office and asking him questions, the, the old manager of the, the Rainiers and, and – uh, uh, who was the, the, the one after that? They, they had a guy after that who had a really good player development uh, – 
history, and I'm drawing a blank on his name at this point, but uh, Dave Brundage actually is the guy. He'd won championships at, at AA San Antonio in the system and came up to AAA. He was a lot of fun to talk to. People that ask me who was my favorite interview ever, it's Roger McDowell. Happened at Cheney Stadium, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. We were sitting down the left field line at Cheney there, and I wanted to ask him about pitchers and the injuries and how we manage pitchers and handle pitchers and just get his take on the whole, you know, guys were dropping like flies in pretty much every organization, especially Pittsburgh with Brian Bullington and guys like that in the early to mid-2000s. And the conversation turned into his old Mets teams. And he was on that 86 Mets team that won the World Series. And, and the 88 team that was in the LCS against the Dodgers, the Oral Hershiser-led Dodgers. But he talked more about the 87 Mets than the other two because he thought that team was actually better. But when you get those opportunities to talk to people like that and learn like that, um, like the, it's endless. Like The possibilities are absolutely endless. And I took notes on everything. I recorded a lot of stuff. I watch games. I watch every Mariners game at least twice. So I get I get Kelnick's at bats twice. I get Julio's at bats twice. That way, when I when I see something that's different or new, I actually recognize it. Um, I watch a lot of minor league games twice, uh, usually on some sort of a DVR kind of a situation, so I can rewind and watch at bats, watch pitching deliveries, things like that, and ask questions. Asking questions is the most important thing I, I could ever teach a kid uh, or a young person or even an adult. Um, I'm telling friends of mine that are older than me, ask the question, ask, ask them, like. Don't sit back and wonder, just ask the question. And that's really been helpful for me, even though I did battle, you know, kind of the bravery wall a little bit. Do I want to walk up to the, he's the general manager of the Seattle. Do I want to walk up to Pat Gillick right now? Cause I really didn't, I was afraid to do it, but I was glad I did at the end of the day. And, and that's really set me up for, um, to, to have a chance to talk about baseball and write about baseball, you know, for a living, uh, all these years to, to be involved at that level. And, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. I get to come on and talk with you guys, too. We've been spending like the last half hour, 40 minutes talking about Mariners baseball. And if I hadn't asked all those questions of all those people that scared me 10, 15, 20 years ago, we wouldn't be here talking about this. So uh, that's really a, a, one of the biggest difference makers for me is seeing all those games and, and developing relationships so I had access to people to learn more. Where's your favorite spot in the minor leagues? It sounds like you've been to a lot of minor league spots then. Yeah, uh, I've seen most of the Cal League uh stadiums uh most of the about half of the the old uh, the old midwest league stadiums at least um seen a few eastern leagues a few of the old international league stadiums i think my favorites i really do like genie stadium as long as you're sitting behind the plate if you're up in the press box you can't see down the left field line so um a little bit of a design flaw there if you're sitting in the press area at that ballpark but um, I really like, I saw Modesto and Stockton last year at Stockton and really, really liked that ballpark. That was one of my favorites. I think Nashville and Memphis are right at the top. I think, uh, Reno is, is near the top and, and all three of those are in the, uh, the Pacific coast league. Uh, I haven't seen the, uh, the Mets affiliate, uh, the new Orleans affiliate down there. I haven't seen uh, there. Oh, the Texas league. I saw, I saw San Antonio in 2003. I don't really remember it a whole lot. But I remember really liking it, and a lot of folks like the uh, the backdrops in the Texas League quite a bit. So uh, hopefully, I'll get out and see more ballparks this year. But I'd say uh, I'd say yeah, those three Pacific Coast League ballparks stand out the most for me. Hey, do you guys remember uh, when Portland had a team? Or you might be too young to remember. Portland had a Triple A team for a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I work here in Corvallis, Jason, okay. um, and I work with the the former voice of the of the Portland Beavers, Mike Parker. Beautiful. So he is he's very uh, 
he he has plenty of stories to tell about them playing at Providence Park and and such. It's a soccer stadium now, but I, I from everyone I hear about of, of all the all the stories about it. That was before my time. Yeah, it's an interesting ballpark. You wouldn't go to it and say, or at least at the time, I don't know what it looks like now as a soccer stadium, but you wouldn't go to it and say, what a beautiful ballpark. You'd be like, huh, this is interesting because it's kind of sunken. If somebody really jumped into one and hit one out the left field, it's into the street downtown. And if you're standing around, you're liable to get hit. If you're parked on the side of the road, if somebody really tanked one like 460, you're getting hit. And then in right field, like above right field, there's like this, uh, there was like this gym and people, you could see people on their treadmills and, and workout machines. It's just so odd. And so, um, had all these little goofy intricacies about it. Yeah. Chris Metz got me in quite a bit down there in Portland. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I like quirkiness in ballparks like that quite a bit. So, you know, I love, uh, I love T-Mobile park. I love Oracle park, the old AT&T down in uh, San Francisco. Um, I think the most underrated, amazingly, the most underrated big league stadium I've ever been to is, is the new Bush stadium in St. Louis. Like, I don't understand how people can go to that stadium and not go, this might be the best park here. This might be the best park in this league. Yeah. I mean, so I, I was at Bush stadium actually not that long ago. And, and I agree. I mean, so I guess the city of St. Louis, maybe for some people, tanks their opinion a little bit. I mean, that was just kind of what I took away. But if you're just talking about the ball, how long ago were you there? Outside the how long ago were you yeah, there? Yeah, like it's, uh, it was like last May. No, and I was going to say, but the ballpark itself, unbelievable. Because the area around the ballpark is the model for the rest of Major League Baseball now. Mm-hmm. They have this whole like baseball city sort of thing going there. And right. it's amazing. And that's what DC is trying to build. That's what the Orioles really want. That's they got a little bit of that. That's mm-hmm. what Seattle really wants, but haven't even made really one significant move other than buying the old brewery over there and building a new restaurant and pub. Um, that's what every major league club wants around their stadium. It is absolutely amazing. So I would totally understand that if you saw the stadium before that was all built, but the last couple of years is essentially, uh, it is, it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. I asked Ken Rosenthal last year, we were in St. Louis actually. And I asked him, we're on the back of a golf cart being driven back to the hotel. And he goes, I go, uh, Hey Ken, what's your favorite park? Cause this one's like underrated, right? And he goes, yeah, I really do like it here. He goes, but Ken worked in, in Baltimore. So he spent a lot of time at Camden. And so he said, Camden mm-hmm. was his favorite, but that Bush might be the one right next to that. Camden's kind of his home ballpark. Camden, I, I got to go to Camden for the first time over the summer. It is, oh, it is just a beautiful ballpark. Maybe a little bit more shade, but the the ballpark itself was was unbelievable. What I, I like how you mentioned like how the, the area around the ballpark uh, for for St. Louis really makes it that much better because that's why I'm sort of a proponent for downtown ballparks because that's not really something you can do when you plop a ballpark out in the middle of nowhere and you just surround it by a bunch of concrete. Mm-hmm. It really, I think, takes away from the atmosphere, which is why I like, I like T-Mobile where it is. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, like what you would do to sort of make it like that ballpark atmosphere you you're really shooting for. Yeah. You people. know, it would have been a good step one to that several years ago, building a basketball arena South of T-Mobile park, <laughs> putting <laughs> yeah. that much more value in every other venue and every other business that might want to be down there. But yeah, usually it's just red tape. Like everybody agrees doing things like that is a good idea, but a lot of it's red tape who owns these bills. Like I think it's goofy that King five is literally 
Kitty Corner, the building that King Five is in, is Kitty Corner from the ballpark. That whole building over there. Sorry, Chris Egan, you're like the greatest human being of all time, but your building should not exist over there. Like it, your building should be somewhere else. Let's move it. Let's put let's put shops in there that are baseball related. Let's put restaurants in there. Let's put bars in there. Let's put merchandise stores in there. Uh, it's a perfect spot. Instead, it's very corporate and very, you know, it's like, what are we doing down here? And then like, what is across the street when you're standing, like, and you're looking across at, at, at King five, that building, when you look this way, what is it really nothing? Like, what are we doing down there? Like we're, I don't want to say it's wasted space. There are businesses over there, but they're not really the kinds of businesses that would benefit most or benefit from or benefit most of the people that are down there on a regular basis. Like people that have painting companies and it's like, like, what are we doing? Right? Like, and they've been down there for years. And I think there's just a lot of red tape in, in terms of turning that around and making it kind of a baseball city sort of a situation. Yeah. And, and you know what? I, I, the words didn't come out right about my experience at Bush stadium. Like all the time I spent walking around the ballpark and in the ballpark again, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Like I have my own personal list. You just don't like the town itself. The- which yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, bro. Yeah. Neither, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. So that was it. Like when I started to walk around some of the rest of the town, I was like, eh, but no, the ballpark and the area around the ballpark. Yeah. Awesome. Like, like Bush stadiums in my top five or six parks. That and about every sure. 11 feet on the concourse in that stadium, there is a different kind of nachos that you can buy. Mm. Now I must've not, when, when I was there last, I got one kind of nacho and I was lucky enough to be working a game with Aaron Goldsmith, which means John Smoltz was there. And as goofy as that guy can be on the air, he's goofy in a positive way off the air. He got this huge plate of nachos. And because he didn't want to get stuff all over his shirt before the game, puts on this huge bib that went all the way down basically to his knees. And they end up showing it on the broadcast. And he ate that whole thing. But that stadium, like, seriously, like, every 10 or 15 feet, it's like, oh, they have nachos that they put chicken on. Oh, they have nachos where they put, like, nine kinds of cheese. Oh, they have nachos where it's more like a taco. It's like, is that is this nacho stadium? That's what it felt like. And I was, I'm all for it because it's one of my favorite snack foods. So uh, there are a lot of little, little things about that ballpark that are great. And I think every stadium kind of has that. Although to me, T-Mobile Park, what is the the signature thing at T-Mobile Park? The, the grasshoppers. Gra- I get grasshoppers could be yeah. <laughs> if you go away from food, the roof obviously, but I don't know the, yeah. the garlic fries, which are just awful. Like, come on, like you know, you're not a garlic oh, fries man, person. Get out of here with your garlic fries, like right? Like, <laughs> like, 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 how, I love like how dare you infringe upon my comfort watching a baseball game with your garlic fries? That's my approach <laughs> to garlic fries. Yeah, they're not for me. <laughs> I, I would say that I would say that's a signature thing. I think now that you mention it, like T-Mobile, it might almost be at fault that it has too many options yeah, because now there's not yeah. this one thing that sticks out. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. I like the garlic fries. I'm, uh, but I'm in the category of people I think Ryan Divish included who do not like the pen. That's the part of T-Mobile Park I stay away from. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's not for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm too old to hang out in the pen. I walk out there and people are like, "What's this old guy doing here?" Like, I just want to be with people that want to watch baseball. And that's not exactly <laughs> too many people the with their back to the field for you. You got <laughs> Yeah. You just got to push to the, fr- you just got to go to the front. It's true. You got to get there early. Get all the way to the front though. row. Yeah. You got to get there early. Yeah, I know. Yeah. 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 That's the, that's the dedication. Y'all line. might, and they have all yeah, the beer. Y'all options. might be pretty enough to get up there. Usually they only let the ladies up there. It might work for you guys. If you get there early enough, you know, that's how they do it. Right. I'm totally, I'm, I've never I'm, tried I'm, pushing. I'm, I am absolutely lying. No, I didn't I'm think so. Right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we'll have to give it a shot at some point this year absolutely. and report back. Yeah. 
you know, you said something a couple minutes ago that I actually really wanted to ask you about because you were talking about one riding back in a golf cart with Ken Rosenthal. You were you were also talking about working a game with Aaron Goldsmith and John Smoltz. I think this is something that maybe not a lot of people know about you, but that is another job you have is is you do stats for Aaron Goldsmith for for ba- national baseball mm-hmm. games and some of the national football games that he does, whether it be college mm-hmm. or NFL. I guess mostly Goldsmith does college. But how did you end up making that? Total job? luck. Total luck. Like in 2019, I was uh, on a weekend vacation in Oregon at Multnomah Falls and Goldsmith texts me. And I knew Goldsmith a little bit from when Steve Sandmeyer and I had the radio show at CBS because we had him on. And when we did a remote, he would always come over and sit down and talk to us. So I knew him a little bit. And he texts me one day and he goes, he goes, uh, hey, it's Aaron Goldsmith. And I'm curious if you'd like to go to St. Louis, happened to be the first trip, happened to be St. Louis as well, and do stats for me for the Cubs and Cardinals on Saturday. And it was like a, it was like the previous Sunday. So I'm, I'm sitting around Sunday and it's like five or six days away. And I remember replying saying, well, I don't know really what that means or what that entails, but yeah, you know, like, why would I turn that down? Right. So just incredibly lucky, like right place, right time. Like somebody said, I think somebody said to him, like, maybe see if Churchill can do it, you know? Um, and yeah, so Aaron and Aaron's no longer going to do Fox games. So he's, he won't be gone for all those weekends during the, during the baseball season. He won't be gone in September doing college football, which would be great for Mariners fans that want to see him on the television broadcast. But it was just pure luck, like just about everything else that's ever happened to me. Um, so much fun to, to go on those trips, baseball and football. And uh, for football, I was the spotter. So I used to make the joke that all I did was point at things. Because if you know what a spotter is, that he's just helping the play-by-play mm-hmm. guy. Like, this guy made the tackle. This guy recovered the fumble. This guy caused it. That's all I'm really doing. So I'm standing there watching a football game and getting paid to do it. It's ridiculous, right? So just luck. I was just lucky. I wasn't really necessarily all that great at it. But um, the play-by-play guy kind of dictates what he wants pregame and what he wants during games. And Aaron always made it great. And I got to know Aaron, you know, the last three or four years doing that. And uh, that was a really fun experience. And then I get to come on podcasts like yours and drop names like Ken Rosenthal and John Smoltz for crying out loud. So how much more fun does it get? You know, Eric Karros. I remember Eric meeting Eric Karros a couple of times. I remember, uh, I would tell you this, uh, the guy that I, in, that I enjoyed meeting the least, and I don't mean because he was like a bad dude or he was rude or anything like that, was Tom Verducci. We're in D.C. doing a game and Aaron's an analyst was Tom Verducci, who I actually think is pretty decent on the air. I actually like the broadcast. I like what he brings to the table. But the reason, <laughs> the biggest reason I didn't really enjoy meeting him and talking to him was because I tried to tell him that George Kirby was better than Logan Gilbert and he wasn't having it. And I'd really like to run into Tom Verducci again just to act because he wouldn't remember me because I only met him the one time. And just ask him which guy he likes better now and for the long haul, just to see if he's changed his mind and then remind him that I tried to tell him that. Like, <laughs> you know, just to blow my ego up just a tiny bit there. But uh, he was just not having it. And he was just like, he just put up a wall and he was like, nope, 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 that's not going to happen. Nope, nope. And I was like, oh, so all right, funny. all right. You, I think I'm right really still. Funny. Like, uh, I'm, this I'm was in July, that. by the way. So Kirby hadn't really done a ton, right? Yeah. So. No, I mean, especially funny. because like if you if you look at Logan Gilbert's savant page, like I mean, like Logan Gilbert's still a good pitcher. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, but you know he he gets hit fairly hard, and there's still some stuff I think he has to clean up. Or I mean, Kirby, TJ, and I were just talking about this last week. He has a chance to throw as many as like seven pitches this upcoming year, and we looked 
the only guy that threw seven pitches in the big leagues last year was Otani. Right. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. Uh, we might see him just use the cutter instead of the slider. Um, so we might be down to six, you know, wah, wah. Uh, he's incredible. Like when he started going back to the two seamer, which is a pitch he's had and just never really thrown a lot and it was working and moving. And I'm like, like, what are we looking at here? Like, this is Greg Maddox with velocity. Like this is essentially a modern, the closest thing to a modern day Greg Maddox with velocity at that particular age anyway, that we've seen in the last 25 years. Like guys do throw harder now. Maddox was like 90 to 92 most of his career. Well, Kirby's going to be like 94 to 97 dotting every area of the zone with like, like you said, maybe up to seven pitches, depending on the day, depending on the month, depending on the year. He's a lot of fun to watch. And it's a lot easier to project guys like that, that pound the strike zone and have really easy deliveries. Like you said, Gilbert's got some things to to clean up. Although I like, like what we've seen so far uh, in, in spring, I like his curveball usage and he looked pretty good uh, early on, uh, on, uh, on Tuesday in his uh, in his latest outing so uh, we'll see what i I like both guys both guys are really good both guys are number three or better starters i'm just a kirby guy just a big george kirby fan this is a pretty lofty uh it's a a pretty lofty thing but it it makes sense makes sense before i I think we got a couple more mariners questions but i have one more non-mariners question for you because you said it was going to be your project this season Mm -hmm. on twitter to watch all 30 broadcast teams and then rank them Mm -hmm. Lau and I are both broadcasters. We both went to school. We have degrees in sports mm-hmm. journalism. We've done a ton of play-by-play. So we pay you know, closer attention than the general fan, mm-hmm. probably not as close as you, but to what a given broadcast is. So looking at that for the season, like, what are you looking for? Do you have an early favorite of what's going to be number one or, or what, what they're so after? So what I'm going to try to do is be as objective as I possibly can with the admission that I'm going to favor certain types of things on broadcast that other people might not. So this will be a subjective ranking, but I'm going to be as objective as I possibly can. I'm going to try to think for the casual fan and for the fan that likes to get a little nerdy and geeky about data and things like that and just kind of kind of roll it up into a ball and just kind of see what happens as I watch. Uh, I'm not a big voice guy. I don't really care all that much about the broadcaster's voice. It, it really doesn't matter to me. I mean, I can recognize like, Ooh, listen to that. Like that is, that is a radio voice, but can, can you like, I think most people think Vince Scully is one of the greatest, if not the greatest baseball play by play guys of all time. Did he have a great voice? Not really. It was very distinct, but did he really have a great voice? I mean, I don't think so. And everybody loves him and he's great and elite. And again, maybe the best of all time. So, um, so I'm glad that I have that to kind of roll back on. So now it can just be substance. And now I can think about things like, do I always know what, the, even though I'm watching television, do I understand what's going on? Do they talk too much? Do they talk over the analyst? Does the play-by-play guy get the analyst involved? Are there three guys in the booth? How does that dynamic work? Some people don't like three-man booths. Sometimes it can work. I, I think it depends. Uh, and I'm focusing on the TV broadcast, not the radio broadcast, because that's a whole other ball of wax. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, and I, I haven't really written down, but I will kind of the criterion, you know, for that. And, and as soon as I do, I'll have a better answer, but yeah, I want to think for everybody that watches baseball games, the casual fan that watches a game or two a week, the fan that watches every night, but isn't really a baseball nerd, so to speak. And then the absolute diehard that tries to know and hear everything and understand everything does the broadcast bring something to the table for everybody. And is it proportionate to, 
the expected size of the audience because most of the people that watch those games are just casual fans. Like we know that. So a bit, a little bit of, a little bit bigger piece of the pie has to go toward what the casual fan needs out of the game. But I think even geeks like us, I think you guys would throw yourself yourselves into that category. You yeah, still sure. need all those basic <laughs> things when you're watching the game. You still need, hey, remind me how many outs there are, even though I know I can look up at the screen or, um, you know, tell me, remind me that Diego Castillo is pitched two days in a row. So he's probably down because if I'm watching a game, like if I'm at a game or I'm watching a game, it's a little bit different. But if I'm watching a game just to have fun and I'm not really thinking about things like that, if I'm more of a casual fan, I need to be reminded of that. And even if I'm the nerd that's like, you know, boy, I don't like the Diego Castillo matchup. Aaron Goldsmith or Dave Sims saying, we were told before the game that Diego Castillo is probably the only guy down in the bullpen. I need that stuff. But if you watch broadcast, not all of them are good at reminding you of those things. Not all of them are good at asking the questions of the manager and, 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 you know, the pitching coach or the hitting coach or whoever might be the relevant conversation at that particular time in the broadcast, things that they might need to know during that day's game. Some of them are good at it and some of them really aren't. I can tell you from my experience working with them, Aaron Goldsmith is going to do that homework. I know that. So, and that's going to be the tough one for me. If I don't rank the Mariners number one, first of all, will I live to see the next day and will Aaron Goldsmith be arrested right away or will he? <laughs> um, no. Uh, and if the Mariners aren't number one, where do they rank? That's going to be the big question because that's obviously the, the broadcast team that I hear the most, that I listen to the most, that I know the most. I have conversations all year round with Dave Sims as well. Um, nobody really knows Mike Flowers. Um, so I'm not sad that I, I don't know Mike Flowers. I don't take any, uh, anything from that, but yeah, they're going to rank pretty high. I think that the home team is going to, but I'm looking forward to doing that. I'm going to start out. I'm going to do it division by division, I think, and, uh, listen to at least one full game, take notes. And then around, uh, around the 50 game mark, just kind of see how many, how many teams that I've, uh, that I've watched that I've listened to and how many times I think I need to go back. And, and I'm going to make this as scientific as I possibly can. I'm going to have a lot of fun doing it. I also hope to meet some of these people on the road this year, um, which is going to be fun. I plan on uh, visiting a bunch of ballparks this year that I haven't been to. I'm starting with uh, Cleveland and uh, Pittsburgh on a trip in May. Mm. And on that same trip, I'm going to go to the Buffalo minor league ballpark for the first time. So I'm going to drive. I'm going to fly into Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and Buffalo and do that. But I'm hoping to meet some of those broadcast teams too. So uh, it'll make it even harder not to rank them high because I'm going to like them personally. Right. And that's how it always goes. <laughs> so it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Were you texting Goldie every single day when he was getting courted by St. Louis? No. Cause <laughs> uh, should I tell you this? I knew, I already knew. I knew what was going to happen. Yeah. I knew before okay. he, before he went to St. Louis, what was happening. I just couldn't tell anybody. Yeah. yeah. All right. And I just, I almost thought of, Hey, asking him, Hey, do you mind if I break this? But then I thought, no, nah, let's just, <laughs> let's let somebody with a bigger, like beat reporter style following break this and, and they'll talk to Aaron and it'll be in the times and it'll be on root sports and it'll be, you know, and it'll be on seven ten. And so I just let it go. But yeah, I knew like, you know, I don't, I'm not sure to be honest with you how much Aaron has, has talked about this, but, um, he had some family move out to Seattle in November from St. Louis. And I just thought, I'm not even going to ask him. I know he's not leaving. I know he's not. And then I heard from him before he went to St. Louis that he's going to do it. 
but he was like 99.9999% sure he just wasn't going to take the job. And as soon as he realized, I just can't do this, like he bowed out. Yeah. Yeah, I, he, I mean, he's another person we definitely hope to have on here at some point. I know he's already been asked a million times about the whole mm-hmm. Cardinals, Mariners, yeah. like offseason free agency that he had. But just to hear a little bit about it from him, plus he's another baseball nerd. So I think here, do this when you, when you guys have him on. Um, do this. Um, ask him something that involves me that would be funny. Like ask him, like ask him something along the lines of uh, how thankful – uh, he is that he got to work alongside me for for the last three or four years doing football and be, something along those lines. And he'll probably sniff it out that I set you guys up for it. But do something like that. So before you have him on, like, let's have a short conversation and I'll, I'll give you something really good to ask. He's Perfect. Aaron Goldsmith is one of my favorite. They were welcoming Aaron Goldsmith on <laughs> uh, just kicking it off, Aaron. <laughs> I mean, how thankful are you that Jason Churchill made your yeah, career? You know, maybe something not quite that, but yes, right along that, right along those lines. That that's exactly the flavor that used to take. He is like you know when you watch people on TV, they always tell you you know things like you know don't meet your heroes, you know things like that. And when you watch a, a guy broadcast games in your hometown, and then you meet him, and he's not only what you hoped he would be, but beyond. That's that's Aaron. It really is. I, I cannot say enough good things about Aaron Goldsmith as a, as a person, and and getting to meet his kids and, and getting to meet his family and and getting to work alongside him. He is just like the he does the little things, man. And and like I told him, <laughs> I told him that uh, <laughs> really quick story. So the the broadcasters, the play by play guys, get a car allowance. The stats guys don't. And and when I say car allowance, that doesn't mean rental car. Because when I did football, I was the driver. That was one of my jobs as a spotter. I also drove. So, like, I would drive, like, Aaron, the stats guy, and, like, Brock Heward or Mark Helfrich to the state. That Somehow, I think Brock Heward nominated me for that. I didn't know that was part of my role, and it turned out to be part of my role. So that was me. But, like, they'll send a car for the play-by-play guys at the airport, take you to the hotel. You don't have to wait for an Uber like a little car, like a big black sweet looking SUV or something along those lines. Right. Well, Aaron always like, you know, like a lot of times we had the same flights, you know, and we're on the same plane and, and, uh, he would always make a first class versus non first class joke, by the way. Uh, he was always in first class. (laughs) I usually was not. Um, so he would always pretend like he couldn't talk to me anymore. Um, and, but we'd get off the plane and he'd wait for me and, um, we'd walk and I, you know, I'd, like he would include me in his car allowance, right? And that may seem like a small thing. Like, well, he'd be a jerk if he didn't, but I didn't think of it that way. And one time we were in, uh, maybe we were in, we were in Atlanta. It was the last game we ever did together. And we got off the plane and we're walking and we see the driver and Aaron's like, yeah, I'm Aaron. You know, there's two of us. And the guy's like, cool. And he takes our bags and all this. And I go, hey, Aaron, what if all this time that we've been doing this, that we would, you would wait for me off the plane and we'd walk all the way to where you're going to get your car. And then you just get in your car and say, see you at the hotel later. And you just take off and leave me sitting there waiting for an Uber. And I just wish, I really wish one time he would have done that because it would have been a story that I would have told my entire life. But he, like, he thought about things like that. He thought about like early on, like, how do I make sure um, Churchill's comfortable at the ballpark? Like maybe this is a ballpark he's never been to. Um, he's never met these people. Um, the first time I met John Smoltz or Ken Rosenthal, 
like Aaron made sure I was included, even though a lot of this stuff was really meant for the broadcast people, the actual voices that you're going to hear on the broadcast. But I never got left out, not in baseball, not in football, because Aaron made sure I was always involved. I was always on the emails. I was always involved when the company was going to buy dinner. Um, like we went to Manny's in Minnesota, like in Minneapolis for the Twins game, the Friday night before the game. And this is a place like they give you a private room. And there were like, I don't know, 10 of us there and the bills, like $2,500 afterwards. It's like one of those places. It's a place I don't belong, you know, to be honest with you. But like he made sure I was included in that. Like he's just, he's that guy. And uh, when we had a conversation after he'd, he, he told me, you know, it's, it, like I'm done with Fox and, and I'm staying in, in Seattle. Um, like he apologized to me, first of all for like the Fox thing not being on my plate anymore. Like, come on, man. Like what kind of guy does that? But like, I couldn't say, I, I can't say enough great things about, about Aaron. He's just, uh, he's a great dude and he's fun to listen to and he cares about the gig and he cares about the game. Um, and I think the one thing that I truly, truly disagree and think Aaron is insane about is the pitch clock. Broadcasters love the pitch clock and I am out on the pitch clock. <laughs> That's about it. Uh, but that was a, it was a great it. experience to answer your question. He was, I had a lot of fun. He was great. It wasn't about making extra money. Uh, it was about being able to go into see those ballparks with those people and, and hear John Smoltz tell stories and, and hear, um, uh, Aaron's a great storyteller too. So if you can get stories out of him when you guys have him on, man, oh, yeah, he will tell stories till the cows come home. Yeah. It'd be great. Yeah. I mean, the little, the little bit of time I've gotten to talk with him. Yeah. He was always great too. Like we, we talked with him a couple of times when he was doing ASU mm -hmm. games and, and he got lunch with me once and was awesome. awesome yeah. Like talking about broadcasting. He, yeah. Like he, is, he will not ignore genuine. people. If you get a hold of him, he will talk to you. He will answer. Yeah. So you, right. when you guys want to get him on, as long as he can do it, he will absolutely do it. Like, you know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I got to ask you this. Cause all this Aaron Goldsmith talk, sparked one more question in my head before maybe we get back to one or two final Mariner questions is sometimes on Twitter, you'll tweet out like feel good broadcast edition. And it's usually when Goldsmith's Goldsmith talk. and Blowers. What do you mean by that? When you're, when you're talking so about that? knowing that I'm going to get like, let's say the game is incidental in the fourth inning, it's 10, nothing Mariners or the white Sox are up eight, nothing and the starting pitcher. And it's just a dog game. That is when Aaron Goldsmith is at his best because yeah, he will get Mike Blowers more involved than it seems like Mike Blowers wants to be involved in the game at that point. Like, I don't want to say Blowers is checked out, but the analyst often checks out, you know, a lot when the game just is a dog like that. But that's when the funny happens. That's when Goldsmith brings out uh, some of the fun in, in Mike Blowers being um, a little bit unheard of in, in some cases. Like, it's harder to get. Do you remember, you guys remember, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, but I think it was last year when Aaron mentioned that they went to buy ice cream before the game and Mike Blowers mm -hmm. card didn't work. Do you remember that? Blowers did not like the fact that Aaron mentioned that his card didn't work because it made it kind of sound like the card was declined and Blowers was broke or something. And Mike was like, <laughs> the card didn't get declined. And like, you just tell like there's this slight level of annoyance. And I mean, I just called it the feel good edition because like, first of all, I stole that from uh, from SportsCenter from 25, 30 years ago when uh, Craig Kilborn would be on with Carl Ravitch and he called it the feel-good edition. You know, he'd open up with that. Mm -hmm. I, so I stole that. But it's it's so much fun to hear Goldsmith challenge himself with 
pulling content from Mike Blowers, particularly in a game that's a dog. It's it's the best. And I think if I were Aaron and I were interviewing for a job, I would pull out like a 10 nothing game and say, look what I do for your audience when the game is terrible and nobody cares about the outcome anymore. Look how I keep people. That's what I would do. Yeah. He's uh, he's magic when it comes to that. And Blowers, you know, give him credit. He will play along just enough for things to be really funny when it works, when, when he's enticed to, to, to talk and react to, uh, to Goldsmith in that way. So, yeah, so that's why I call it the feel-good edition. Yeah, and, and I always enjoy it. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same way. I think he's phenomenal, when, especially when it's like a blowout type of game. You were talking about Blower's card. There was some game, too. I can't even remember when it was, but they were talking about all being out at dinner, and, and Blower's made a little joke. He was like, yeah, Aaron, I can't believe you actually pulled your, call, your uh, card out of your wallet or something <laughs> like that. Like, yeah, yeah, they have a lot of fun. It, that's that's one of the things, and like you don't hear that from from everybody. You don't hear Blowers ribbing, you know, everybody. Does he rib Sims like that? I I don't know. I don't remember hearing it. Does Sims, you know, rib Blowers like that? I don't know if they have that kind of relationship or not. But listening to other broadcasts, you don't hear that level of uh, of engagement between the play by play guy and the analyst. Some do it. There are a few. I think the Mets broadcast does a pretty good job. I think when Dave Cohn is on the Yankees broadcast, they do a pretty good job. But uh, a lot of them are missing that element. And and Seattle does that well. And, and Goldsmith's kind of the, um, you know, he's kind of the director of that. He's kind of the orchestrator of, of that. And he should be. Like, he's, he's their dude on TV. And uh, from what I understand, he's going to do more games this year on television than he ever has before. So if you're a Goldsmith fan, I, I think that's good news. Yeah, definitely. You know, if we were going to get back to one or two Mariners questions here as we start to kind of wrap this up, I've got to ask at least this one because TJ and I have been trying to kind of crack a riddle here the last week or two. And for the life of us, we cannot do it. So we're hoping maybe you you can provide some insight on this. Well... Maybe riddle's not the right word, but we're staring at Luis Castillo stats because we've been talking about some pitchers over the last week or two and and how they're going to kind of profile and project in 2023. I mean, we're looking at Castillo, who historically his changeup's been his best pitch of his career. It's been his out pitch. It's what he goes to. It was at least by run value. When you look at baseball savant, his best pitch, his fastball's never graded as some elite pitch. I mean, it's a good pitch. He throws it hard. But fast forward to 2022, I mean, the results he got on his fastball were ridiculous to the point where guys were slugging less than 200 against his fastball. Mm-hmm. Like, his numbers before that never even got close when you look at slugging against his fastball. So, like, how in the world does that type of progression and evolution happen in one Sometimes season? it's just – it really depends on the situation, but sometimes it's just a matter of how often do you throw that pitch or how do you use that pitch? What areas of the zone are you attacking? Because he throws both a two- and a four-seamer. And generally speaking, we would think, okay, four-seamer up, two-seamer down, get the run on the two-seamer. Four-seamer has the same run to the same side, but it carries a little bit better to the plate and stays up, stays above the hands when you try to throw it up in the zone, things like that. But he can use both of those pitches in, in multiple ways. And I think maybe just where he was throwing it, the zones that he was using, when they made that trade, I, I thought one of the things I thought that I expressed uh, on baseball things was I, I think there's a pretty good chance that the Mariners get more out of Luis Castillo in general than the Reds did. And the biggest reason was they probably have a different idea of how he should go about using the pitches that he has. Not, hey, let's change the grip or anything like that necessarily. Not, let's change your delivery. But like, 
you know, it almost goes to the, the old reliever thing. Remember when they brought in Austin Adams and a couple of years back, and mm-hmm. then he had a good like first half and then they traded him, you know, uh, to the Padres in, in one of the multiple, uh, you know, woodshed uh, moments of uh, AJ Prouder's career where Jerry DePoto just spanked him in a deal. The, the you it was the usage it was how do you use it how often do you use it and i i look at castillo the same way if you pull up those slugging against or uh ex woba numbers on his fastball look at the monthly splits and see how different it is pre-trade and post-trade because there is a little bit of a swing uh, upswing in fastball value after he got to seattle and I, i just think that tells me it's strategy without looking into it deeper that tells me it's just strategic and now he's using his fastball. His changeup wasn't that great last year. Like, I see the run value. You're right. Like, the value's still there. Nobody's really hitting it. But it's not the swing and miss pitch that it was two, three years ago. And I think his slider is actually a better pitch um, than it was a year or two ago. And it might be the better of his secondary offerings right now. But he can get I'm, – I'm big on fastball value. Always have been big on fastball value. If you have good fastball value, it takes pressure off your command takes pressure off your ability to locate your secondary pitches or the quality of your secondary pitches. And even though Castillo has quality secondary pitches, the fact that he has two different fastballs, he can get value from anytime he wants. I mean, that plays, you know, that, that, that takes him quite a ways. That can get you through five innings right there, just using fastball on the occasional slider or a changeup. And that's why he can go six and sometimes seven. I think he's a good solid, like number two starter. I know he's the Mariners de facto number one. Um, but I think what we saw from him after the trade last year was legitimate number two. Like if he's in the Yankees rotation, he's right behind Garrett Cole. If he's in the uh, if he's in the Mets rotation, he's behind either Verlander or Scherzer and Verlander. He's that very next guy after the elites. Uh, Castillo's in that group, you know. That fastball, like just the tenant of having a good fastball, seems like it is a core philosophy in what the Mariners do if we're looking at one similarity between the four high-end starters in the rotation I mean Mm -hmm. it's the fastball I mean Robbie Ray plus Logan Gilbert of you know that's his plus Mm -hmm. pitch George Kirby same thing and and you know Castillo the best season of his career with that fastball so I I don't think that's a coincidence no it's not the Mariners aren't really unique there I just think they're um, unique to the Reds there and unique to a few other teams that are focused on other things. They're not really trying to scrape out every single victory at the big league level. And they don't have a lot of finished products where they can just, because you're so focused when you're a young pitcher, teams are so focused on throw strikes. Like command is one thing, but you have to just at least hit the strike zone, you know, a certain amount of time. You don't want to get the two and three ball counts. Like you don't want to walk guys. So they're so focused on the basics that they don't get to the point where the guy's 25, 26, 27, 28 years old. And you can just take that a different layer and say, how about if you took the command and control that you've developed up to this point in your career and you started attacking different parts of the zone or you started throwing a two seamer as well as the four seamer. Some organizations just aren't in a position to do that because there's risk there. Like when Castillo is 25 years old, there's risk there because he's not established. He wants to get established. He's going to be, um, He's probably going to want to avoid changing too much because he knows he's good and he's trying to establish himself, get to free agency, make a bunch of money. But now that he's there and he's making a bunch of money, it's like, I'll do whatever the team wants me to do. I'm theirs for the next five years. It's a little easier to do that. It's easier to do that for the Yankees and the Mets or the Dodgers or the Astros. And you're having success and you're on a good team and you have guys that are either entering their prime or they're already in their prime to some level to try to get them to do a different thing or two to take their game up a step. Otherwise, these younger players are thinking, 
convince me, man. Convince like that. That's why it's impressive that the Logan Gilberts and the George Kirby's of the world are out there on their own doing things that could make them better this year. That sometimes include gripping a pitch differently, throwing a completely different pitch, throwing two completely different pitches, um, using their pitches differently, changing their deliveries. They're doing it themselves. And that's kind of, I don't want to say it's a new thing, but it's a newer thing in Major League Baseball where players are taking control of their own development uh, all the way through their 30s. Like this isn't a, yeah, you do that when you're 20 and then after that you just coast. You can't coast anymore, right? So they're taking it into their own hands. They're not necessarily sitting around waiting for the team to uh, uh, to kind of dictate that. And and that's why we see guys like Gilbert and, and Kirby uh, doing things that maybe Luis Castillo didn't do a whole lot of before he came to the Mariners and started playing for a winning team. It gives you that leeway okay, I'm already this pretty comfortably and the team's going to support me and now I want to do this because I want to take another step. Yeah, it, it has been pretty remarkable just what these Mariners arms have been able to do, especially because, I mean, you look on paper, I mean, the starting rotation has the chance to be the best it's been in some time. I think the roster has a chance to be the best it's been in some time. So if we were going to kind of give you one final question and one final Mariners question here, Jason, I think this is a good cap-off question, is how much better is this 2023 roster compared to the roster just a year ago in 22? I will, uh, I will answer that question by asking you this question. How much better do you think the combination of Luis Castillo, Julio Rodriguez, Cal Raleigh, and I'll, I'll cut it off right there. I'll just leave it right there. Just those three. I could go a little further. I could throw George Kirby in there, but let's just go Castillo, Cal Raleigh, and Julio Rodriguez. How much more valuable to the 2023 team are those three players? And you can think about wins above replacement. That's a good way to do it versus last year. If, if those guys were, I don't know what the totals are, but if those guys were worth 10 wins above replacement last year, total to the Seattle Mariners, what are they worth this year? 11, 12, 13, 14, something like that. Somewhere in that range, right? That's how much better they well, are yeah, because, well, I, I, right? That's how much better they are. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a good way to gauge it. Julio yeah. Rodriguez has a chance to take another and, step forward. Cal Raleigh has a chance to take a big step forward. They're going to have Luis Castillo for what? 15 to 20 more starts than they had him last year. That's an upgrade over what Chris Flexen was giving them or would have given them. Uh, you can stop right there. We can talk about Kirby being unleashed for another 20, 30 innings than he gave him last year. Logan Gilbert in another year. They have a lot of guys trending in the right direction. So if they were truly a 90 win team last year, which is probably pretty close and pretty fair. And that absolute, that, that is the fact that it is how many wins they had last year. I think they're at 92, 93, 94 this year with a chance to get to 95, 96. Oh, go ahead, TJ. It looked like you were going to say something. Uh, he, Jason answered the question. So I, okay. I was going to, I was Guys, just going to add just it, how you, good you I am. I'm reading minds these days. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I guess to kind of close off my final thoughts based on the war thing that you were just talking about. I mean, I guess I kind of know this off the top of my head, which kind of shows you, I guess, I focus all my time in the world into baseball and not much else. But I think off fan graphs, Julio's war was like five and a half. Cal's was about four. And Castillo's was also right around Right, but for the Mariners, it wasn't four. That's a key to this, right? Right, right. But total. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, Julio could get as high as... Lord Would it shock you if he was a seven-win guy this year? Would it shock you? He only played 100, 132 games last year. So if he plays 150, 145, 150, that's a six-win guy if he puts up the same numbers, right? That's not even yeah, considering mm-hmm. the fact that he could actually perform better 
in those 145, 150 games than he did last year in 130, whatever. And that's Julio by himself. So the upside's pretty big with this with this ball club. And I think Cal Raleigh, by the way, one of the things I just keep pounding in my own in my own head, in my own conversations with myself, because I do talk to myself quite a bit. Cal Raleigh's batting average is something to watch this year. It's a weird thing to say because batting average is not a good indicator of how well a player is performing, but I do think it is a sign uh, of progress for Cal Raleigh. You can't hit 200-ish and expect to put up a 320, 330, 340 on base percentage. I mean, that's really, I mean, he's not Ricky Anderson, right? Not hitting a buck 97 with a 370 on base, right? He's Cal Raleigh. He's a good player, but he's not Ricky Henderson. So if we see Cal Raleigh, showing signs of with an ability to hit 230, 240, and eventually, maybe not this year, but eventually 250, 260, as some of the rule changes help uh, things like batting average. I mean, we're talking about a perennial all-star here and a guy that's probably going to make a lot of money, but might also, in his peak, be a top 10 MVP guy one year. Like, that's the kind of upside we're, we're seeing. Would it? Uh, let, me, let me say this. He's 25 years old, right? 25, 26. He hit, what, 25 mm-hmm. homers last year. Would it surprise you if he hit 30 homers this year? Yeah. No. Okay. no. Would it surprise you if no. he hit 225 this year with a 310 on base percentage? Would it surprise you? No. That's only what? With, 20 with points sh- higher than what no. last year, right? Yeah. I say, not, yeah, no. 20 points higher. and you, you can even think of it this way. It's like, so what did Cal hit if you throw out his sure. first month last year? You can do the same thing with, with Julio. Like a buck, like 050. Yeah. Same yeah. thing with Julio, right? Like, what yeah. is he hitting? And that's just off of last and year sample, and not off a of full offseason. season. a bigger work. sample than everything that happened before that. So it means just as much because of recency and sample size as what happened before that. Now, none of us are sitting here saying April didn't count for Julio or April didn't count for Cal. But when you're trying to project forward, that's a good way to look at it. It's a really good way. It's possible. Like I wouldn't bet on Julio hitting 340, but would I bet on him hitting, repeating his batting average and on base from last year at least? Yeah. And I think Cal Raleigh's going to take a 10, 15, 20% step, you know, in the right direction. And I mean, we're talking about all-star potential MVP type in Julio Rodriguez as early as this year, all-star caliber catcher, uh, three, maybe four all-star caliber pitchers. You couldn't say that when we started last year. The confidence in saying that we knew some of these guys had the ability, but now it's like the floor is a lot higher. So for me, when you push the floor up, and while it's not dollar for dollar or win for win, when you push the floor up, the ceiling goes up too. There are so many fun storylines with this team to watch in 2023. It's going to be as exciting of a season as fans have experienced in quite some time. As great as 22 was, I think 2023 is the chance to be even better. Jason, you really previewed that well. You've previewed everything that we've talked about incredibly well. And I think this entire interview has been a blast. Mid-season or at some point during the year, we'll have to have you back on again to kind of catch up on some of these things and check in on all the things we talked about. Because really, this is... This you is- got it absolutely anytime, guys. Thanks so much, Jason. You got Jason. it anytime. By the way, uh, do both of you live in Corvallis? No, no, just I, me. That's that. I, I work here in uh, in Corvallis. I work. I I cover Oregon State okay. here and there, or not here and there. It's pretty much and my day job. Where do you job. live, Lyle? Um, uh, for now, I'm I'm back in in the Northwest in okay. Brooklyn. Okay, so you're not that far. You, you live in the same city as Aaron Goldsmith. How about that? Buzzing here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. I'm going to be in Corvallis at some point in April. Um, if you're going to going to come to golf. Yeah. If you're going to be in town, I'll come say hi or you can come say hi or whatever. We can make that happen. I'll get lunch or whatever. Um, Lyle, we're, right, Lyle, we're neighbors, so let's not be strangers. It's ridiculous. You live like 15 minutes away. I'm a Mercer Island. So 
Um, yeah, let's definitely. Uh, let's go to a game. Do you come up, TJ? Do you come up for games every once in a while? Uh, I w- when I get some cool. time off. Right. Yeah, when baseball yeah. season dies down, it's a little when, easier. When, when college baseball season dies down, it's easier. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right, yeah. cool. Sounds good. Anytime, guys. Let me know. All right. Definitely, Jason Churchill, host of the Baseball Things podcast. Thanks, guys. Peace out. That was a fantastic interview with Jason Churchill. I know I've said it a bunch. I'll continue to say it. He is one of the smartest Mariners people you'll find. If you want to get smarter about the Mariners, go follow him on Twitter. Go find his work. I mean, he's awesome. He he was absolutely one of my favorite interviews we've done. So we appreciate all the time he gave us, too. All right, TJ. I think we're ready. Let's close out this show with Speak Your Mind. Speak Your Mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. You've been kind of keeping me on my toes all day about this. So what are you thinking about this week? I'm not one to venture into the NBA too often. I'm just not the biggest basketball guy. Doesn't help the Sonics left when we were, what, 10? That doesn't help, right? For my my basketball Don't. interest, but there's no league like the NBA in terms of generating storylines. And another one this week that I totally it totally flew right past me, and I didn't even think about some. This is something I should have been paying attention to closer. But Kyrie Irving's Dallas Mavericks are seven and thirteen since they traded for him. Just as we said when it happened, why would you ever trade for Kyrie Irving? Why would you? Why would you? Ever at this point of his career attempt to deal with Kyrie Irving and the path of destruction that he has left behind at, at not one stop, not two stops, not three stops, <laughs> like three stops. And his Mavericks are now sitting at 36 and 39, a game outside of the play in. Are you kidding me? The Dow, like this is when this trade happened. The Mavericks were supposed to be Western Conference favorites. That, like, they were supposed to be Western Conference favorites. They are now not even going to get in the play-in tournament. Like that is that's unbelievable. They have lost to the twenty-five and fifty-one Charlotte Hornets twice in the last four days. The ones you know without their best player in Lamelo Ball, who's been out almost all season. It, it is incredible the efficiency that Kyrie Irving can do this to teams. Just it gets faster. It was like two years with LeBron, one year with the Celtics, like I'd probably say three quarters of a year that he actually played with the Nets. And then and it has taken 20 games with the Mavericks. And he's had other stars every stop of the way. It's not like he's playing on teams like the Hornets or like the Magic or somebody like that. No, he's playing on real teams with elite talent, yet somehow he's always unhappy. I mean, I don't get how he hasn't just retired and hung it up at this point. Like, I, I, I get that this. he's making a, I, I get he's making like $40 million or whatever it is per year, maybe a little bit more than that. But, like, you're always miserable. Like, why are you still playing if you're just miserable all the time? And, like, Luca's gotten kind of to be a mess, too. He picked up his 16th technical foul yesterday, which gets you an automatic suspension, which I believe, I 
didn't double check. I believe that got waived. But once you get 16 techs in a season, you get an automatic one game suspension with the Mavs needing to now win every game, which is which is crazy. And I see stuff floating on Twitter. It's like, would this run actually cause Luka to leave Dallas? Which would be crazy. Can you imagine? You you have hit the home run of all home runs by getting Luka Doncic and trading for him with the Hawks. And he leaves because you make some bad personnel decisions and the team plays like absolute shit down the stretch for and just to miss the play-in game. It's just, that's crazy. Uh, that just it just blows my mind because like everyone could see it coming and the Mavericks decided you know what it's worth it but uh, it was not obviously I mean this has to be it if if everything really crashes and burns in Dallas with Kyrie there is not going to be another contender that trades for him right like there cannot be another contender after this that trades for him the only way I feel like he keeps playing is again if he goes to some bad team just puts up his numbers every night, complains whenever he wants, and kind of does whatever he wants. And he'll just make his money and not make the playoffs. Got me. You you really don't. I'm like I'm just at a point where like especially with a lot of these stars in the NBA, just it, it's hard to like see them like like they're some of these can they can just carry teams at some times and then also at the same time can just destroy them by literally just being a bad personality. That's it. It's all you need to do. You one bad apple on a fi- in a five person rotation on the floor kills the whole thing every time. Yeah, it's crazy. And I, you know, you'd think teams would learn their lesson with Kyrie Irving, but what do we know? I mean, Kyrie Irving just for the shits and gigs could end up in either Phoenix or L.A. next year. Could you imagine that? He either goes back to LeBron or back to KD. Right? Wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> this league. Oh. oh, I would laugh. It would be perfect script script writing. We can put it like that. Man. Well, I think to be honest, I think he's probably he's probably favored to go to the Lakers, right? He's got to be probably. That that would be the only organization I could see that would be like, this is a great idea. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah, it didn't work. They thought Westbrook. Westbrook was a good idea, and I was trying to tell him. I was telling him, no. Yeah. Well, fool fool you once, shame on them. But fool you twice, shame on you. If they trade for Kyrie Irving next year, that's on the Lakers. Okay, let's get to my speaker mind here. It's a little bit of a different tone than Kyrie Irving, and and that gave me a good laugh, especially that little rant you gave there at the start. Uh, It's actually more about us. I was just kind of thinking this week as season's about to start. I mean, we're running now, what, four and a half months on this podcast, and I was just kind of thinking back to the time we started, and, you know, we were pretty excited to start it. I mean, we both loved the Mariners for a long time, and we talked for a long time about starting something like this, and we finally had the time and felt like we had the skills to do it, I guess. And not only has it been a blast, I know on my end, I think on yours too, but hopefully for everybody that's listened so far, because I mean, you know, without listenership kind of becomes hard to do, but the fact people follow us on social media now, and we get some real listens on the episodes, like I'm not saying we're taking the world on or anything like that, but the fact that like just through four months with no baseball going on that, that people want to kind of tune in. It's, it's been a blast and and I don't think we plan to stop anytime soon. So, you know, I was just kind of reflecting on that a little bit and, and thinking about, you know, it's been a blast so far. Got all deep on me there for a second. I needed a heads up. Oh, my bad. My bad. It was getting a little sentimental be. here. It's been so hard. We've uh, really, we've really just really, it's really been such a grind. Oh, I mean, it has been, it is, it has been, it has been a ton of fun. And what I, what I think the thing I've realized the most here on this podcast is like, 
I think not even just for like viewership wise, what we realized just like how much fun just having other people on is like mm -hmm. we spent the first, what was it? Nine or 10 episodes. It was just us, just us talking. And it's great when we're, you know, spitting numbers at each other, but then we get, you know, the first couple of guests, we get Jordan Schusterman and Joe Doyle on, and you really like, you know, peels back layers and we can like loosen up and relax a little bit. And I hope to, you know, get to one point where all of our episodes are like our conversation we had with Jason Churchill. I mean, it's just us sitting there talking. It's like, we're not like, we don't need to be rolling through a script. Essentially. We we're just sitting there just like shooting the shit essentially. Though for you know an hour an hour and a half about the Mariners about life about baseball about Kyrie Irving like you know that's what good podcasts are it, it gets to the point where we want to get where it just feels like you guys are sitting there hanging out with us like that's it that's what the best podcasts do you feel like you're sitting there right next to all the other podcast hosts and just hanging out like listening to them have a conversation that's all it is yeah. right. So and that's what we hope to get to this. And we'll try and, you know, incorporate some some fun things as the season goes along to sort of loosen it up a little bit and add a fun element and things to keep track of. Like, I already know that as soon as I said Julio was going under 30 and a half home runs, he's going to hit 31 by the All-Star break before he goes into the home run derby. And we can keep track of like, yeah, we welcome you into this episode. And uh, Julio's home run tracker teach is at uh, 22 and it is June 15th. I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> oh, we'll track some stuff this year for sure. That's on your, maybe we'll track the Julio home runs on your end. You know, on my end, we'll be tracking Jared Kelnick and Dylan Moore. That's for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think, I, I hope at least through the first four and a half months, there's there's been a decent amount of where people just kind of feel like they're sitting with us and listening to a conversation because that's what we try to have it be. And hopefully with our guests, it's kind of showed the same thing. And our goal with a lot of these guests is we're trying to get a lot of different perspectives on. I mean, we have somebody like Chris Langan on who knows more pitching than probably 99.99999% of the entire planet. We have somebody like Jordan Schusterman on who's in the you know baseball content world. And he's got his own take on the Mariners, similar to how we do, who we pump out content similar to how he does, not at his level, but... He's got a fan perspective, and then we have people on like Corey Brock and Ryan Divish who cover the team, and they've got their perspectives. And and you know what? As time goes on, too, we're going to start to try to stretch out some of the guests we have, too. I mean, we'd love to have as many Mariners people as possible, but we're going to try to get some guests, you know, just across baseball in general, get some fun interviews maybe outside of the Mariners world and, and keep incorporating it because, I you know, I think we can do that, and I think it's going to be interesting stuff. And like you said, with the fun stuff, I know I can't stress it enough, but we're going to do some cool stuff on our social media accounts when, when the season starts. Again, we're going to do some on-camera stuff around the stadium. I think we're going to plan to do some fan interviews, fan interviews, some food reviews, a bunch of stuff like that. Like, it's been fun through the offseason, but I think once baseball starts, we're going to be able to do that much more content. So hopefully only up from here. What's the first thing you're trying tomorrow? I know you're going to be there tomorrow, so keep keep tuned to our, our social media accounts. I won't be there for opening day tomorrow. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, I will not be there on opening day. You will, though. So what, what are you shooting for first? Are we, or do we have an idea of what our first food review would be? I got to decide. I mean, it's probably got to be one of these new uh, T-Mobile Park foods that they're unveiling i guess the other thing i was thinking about too is, is am i going to do a food review on opening day i was hoping to you know hopefully talk to some fans on opening day and and get some interviews for some content in that way but uh, let me put it like this within the first weekend of games i right. will do a food review right. uh, or 
and um, what that first food review is. I mean, that Ballard pizza looks pretty good, although that might be up your alley as somebody who actually grew up in the city of Ballard or neighborhood of Ballard, however it's classified. Um, the Calzone, you know, it's it's called Cal, C-A-L, and then Zone, but it's a Calzone. I mean, that looked pretty good. I'm, I'm going to have to weigh my options because, you know, I want the first food review to be something interesting. It can't just be, I don't know, like a plain hot dog or something. I hope it's something good. How about the crickets? So. I had one of those once, never again. My dad was so insistent on trying them when they unveiled them, and I think it was 2019. We both had one. You know, he kind of talked me into it, even though I had refused for like an hour and a half. I had one, and we were both like, "This is the worst thing I've ever tasted." Did you get a Did you get a leg stuck in your teeth? I don't know if I got a leg stuck in my teeth. Just in general, it it's it's it was terrible. Like I, I know they tried to have it be this whole thing in their in their signature dish. But it's what it sounds like. You're eating bugs. Like, it wasn't good. Like, but from a marketing perspective, genius, because everyone wanted to go eat bugs at a ballpark, which you can't do anywhere else. <laughs> that That is true. So I think our first food, re- food review is going to be something better than the grasshoppers. But, yeah, we're going to do a bunch of fun stuff throughout the season. And also, not that I really expect people at all to recognize who we are, but if somehow – you're at a Mariners game and and you recognize either one of our faces, you know, stop and say, Hey, I mean, my, my whole thing with this is I want to connect with as many Mariner fans as possible. And, you know, I love talking to Mariner fans and I know there's a whole community of them out there. So, you know, feel free to stop us down or flag us down. If you ever see us walking along the concourse at T-Mobile park or anything like that. So yeah, I I mean, that was a little spiel I just wanted to give on this podcast because you know, it has been fun so far. It's become a major passion of ours and I think it's going to keep going. So I'm looking forward to see to seeing where it can go. But with that, and for the final time this offseason, that'll just about wrap up this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast. And you guys know by now, you want to listen to the full-form podcast, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. Full video podcast is on YouTube. If you want to follow us on social media, which one more time you're going to want to do, especially when the season starts, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube Shorts, at Marine Layer Pod. For TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.